if we're stuck on that idea that this is, you know, the kind of cognitive, that intellectual idea that this is what should happen, it becomes so hard to see our child's experience of what it is that we're trying to do. So again, you know, being able to base those things on the relationship, you know, what, what did it feel like when I have prepared this food for my child mm -hmm. and they have refused it or actually they're disgusted by it? How does that make me feel? What does that touch on for me as a parent? And often there are such complex issues with that. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where I'm asking my guests who or what they're nourishing right now and who or what is nourishing them. I'm Laura Thomas, an anti-diet registered nutritionist and author of the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Emma Svanberg. You may know her better as Mamologist on Instagram. Emma is a clinical psychologist, speaker and campaigner with expertise in attachment and perinatal psychology. She is co-founder of Make Birth Better and founded the Psychology Collective in 2019, which is a team of practitioners offering psychological support and guidance for the whole family. Today, we're going to be talking about Emma's new book, Parenting for Humans, which is out next month and is available to pre-order now. Now, before you get totally freaked out, this book isn't a book that tells you how to be a better parent or to set up new standards or expectations for how you should parent. Rather, the point of the book is to understand how you were parented and all the experiences that you bring to your parenting with the hope of getting to know yourself better and therefore understand what you are bringing to your relationship with your kid. So Emma and I discuss what some of the stories are that we bring to parenting about what we've learned about what a parent should be from our own experiences, but also what are socially constructed ideas about parenting. We talk about how sometimes looking for all the advice and answers actually takes us further away from what we're looking for. And I ask Emma why she thinks we're so drawn to advice from so-called parenting experts. Finally, we talk about how we can sift through all the noise of parenting advice and find what's best for us and our kids and learn to just leave the rest alone. So we'll get to Emma in just a minute. But first, I wanted to remind you that my Raising Embodied Eaters workshop is on Tuesday, the 21st of February. Don't worry, it's not going to be me giving you a bunch of useless tips and tricks, but we will explore your relationship with food and think about how you can support your kids to have a positive relationship with food and their body. I will also give you some practical tools, but my intention is to help you take the pressure off of feeding your kids and help you create a home that supports a healthy relationship to food and bodies. I've linked to the full description in the show notes so you can check it out. It's £15. It will be um, on all on Zoom and I'll have the recording available for a week afterwards that you can watch on catch up if you like. Plus, you'll also get a copy of my Raising Embodied Eaters guide to share with friends family, childcare, and schools. So click the link in the show notes and you'll get the full details of what we're going to talk about in that workshop. And lastly, before we get to Emma, just a quick reminder that Can I Have Another Snack is a reader-supported publication. I'd love to bring you more deeply researched pieces, but it requires a significant investment in my time, plus the support of an editor and behind-the-scenes admin support. So if you are in a position to become a paid subscriber, then please consider it. It's £5 a month or £50 for the year. It works out at something like 50p an article. And if that's not accessible for you right now, you can email hello at laurathomasphd.co.uk putting the word snacks in the subject line and we'll hook you up with a comp subscription. No questions asked. You don't have to explain yourself. I trust that if you are able to afford a subscription right now, you will. And if not, then just get in touch. All right, team, here's my conversation with Dr. Emma Svanberg. All right, Emma, I'd love it if you could start by letting us know who or what you're nourishing right now. Well, at the moment, I am just in the process of nourishing the, I suppose, the next few weeks that are coming up for me, which are all about my new book that is coming out in March called Parenting for Humans, which is a funny process, right? Because you sort of gestate it over a long period mm -hmm. of time and then 
you know, as you know yourself, as we get closer to launch date, there are lots of different kind of angles to think about. So at the moment, I'm both nourishing, trying to uh, talk about my book, trying to really kind of get to grips with understanding how it's going to resonate with people. I think that's mm-hmm. the kind of key thing for me, thinking about the ideas that I really want to kind of get out there into the world, while at the same time still nourishing myself and my family as best I can. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I published my first book, I didn't have that same, I, I didn't have any responsibilities to anyone else except myself. Mm. Um, and then when the second book came along, I'd, I had a six month old at that point. And it was just a completely different experience. And it was a, such a fine balance to kind of you know, preserve myself in amongst the chaos of of book publishing. So mm. I hope that you're managing to to find pockets and moments to relax and decompress and and yeah, tend to yourself because it can be a lot. I don't think people realize that writing the book, editing, fact checking, copy editing, all of the that whole lengthy lengthy process is like fifty percent. Mm. publishing a book maybe (laughs) like there's all of the publicity and everything surrounding that is like is a huge piece of it yeah absolutely I think that what makes it easier is that I'm really excited about this book I mean I've also written a previous book that was a very Mm. niche specialist book about birth trauma and was also very excited about that one of course but this book kind of really brings in all of the therapeutic ideas that I work Mm. with with clients and have done so for many years so in some ways I think that you know in itself kind of talking about the ideas of the book um is something that I'm really enjoying doing and kind of Mm -hmm. trying to figure out you know which has always been something that's been really important to me how do we turn what can feel like really inaccessible complex psychological concepts Mm -hmm. into ideas that will make sense to people Mm -hmm. so that they can very quickly then apply them to their own lives so and you've kind of you've kind of touched on it a little bit in terms of kind of the um maybe more how the book functions but can you tell us a little bit more about what you are covering in the book what is the message that you're trying to get across um I think that it started off the idea came from my experience of working with parents um you know I kind of qualified back in 20 uh, 2009 I qualified but um and the experience that I see parents having over that time has changed so much so back Mm. when I first qualified my role was very much about helping parents, most usually mothers within the NHS when I was seeing people to you know, kind of really value their role and think about kind of getting support in place. But, you know, very kind of clear difficulties around, for example, birth trauma or anxiety about bonding with a baby or postnatal depression would be a very common um, difficulty that I'd see. What's shifted in that time is that there is a whole added layer that has been added on top of that for parents, which is around pressure to do things Mm -hmm. a certain way, to be a certain way, to parent in a particular way. And that is pressure that is felt by parents, but it's also pressure that then is experienced by children. And what Mm -hmm. we have then seen kind of come up in, particularly in the last five years or so, is so much advice, so much information Mm -hmm. about how you can tackle that you know try doing it like this this is a really useful strategy that you could have these are some really useful words that you can say to your child but what I then see is parents who've tried that it's not working for whatever Mm -hmm. reason and then they end up feeling like there's something really wrong with me Mm -hmm. I'm a terrible parent or Mm -hmm. I'm just not doing this well enough or there's something wrong with my child my child is broken because all of these beautiful strategies Mm -hmm. are not working where oh God, I never sorry just that just like really that really resonated with not resonated but it, it kind of it struck a nerve the I've thought a lot about how pressure and I think about this a lot as as a professional who kind of gives advice and and shares some of the the things that you talk about in the book you know strategies and advice um I try and be really deliberate and thoughtful and intentional about that whether or not that lands is another is another thing but I so I I think through you know at being a parent think through how that how much pressure and how much pressure there is on parents in general how that contributes to anxiety to guilt to shame to all of these things but I hadn't actually 
thought about what the implication is for our children as well and how Mm. they experience that as pressure Mm. themselves and how they are embodying some of these ideals and ideas and and fantasies around you know what it means to be a to show up as a parent and a person in the world and what that will mean for them as they they grow up so yeah yeah, sorry that just (laughs) sorry to interrupt you there but that just kind of really struck me what you were saying well it's so often it's about the dynamic right so we often focus our attentions as professionals onto the parent rather than or onto the child but actually mm-hmm. I think kind of a really core part of the message of the book is that it's about your dynamic as a family mm-hmm. and the relationship that exists between all of the different members of the family so you know you you as a mother might go off and do loads of reading loads of research gather loads of information try particular strategies but if they don't fit for your child yeah. or for your family with your partner or for the context in which you're living in actually you can end up feeling like I'm not applying this in the correct way rather than actually maybe that strategy wasn't correct mm. for me and my family in the situation that we're in mm-hmm. and I think for me a lot of that work because I, I'm an adult psychologist I focus on work with kind of adult mental health you know, for me, a lot of that is about us as parents understanding where we're coming from, mm-hmm. you know, what's important to us, what history we're bringing into our parenting relationship. Once we understand ourselves, it becomes so much easier to understand what will work for our child or for our family. And it also really allows us to see them as the people that they are. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why it's called parenting mm-hmm. for humans, right? Because it's about you know, how do we parent as the whole humans that we are, not just how we show up as mum or dad, but also mm-hmm. then parenting our children for the whole humans that they are, which is, mm-hmm. you know, flaws and all, mm-hmm. aside from those kind of idealised stories that we read about or hear about that, that you know, kind of describe family life as only fitting a very particular model. Absolutely. Yeah, you this, that's one of the the main themes that you, you talk about at the beginning of the book, this idea that we hold on to stories about what being a parent means, what it looks like, how we should be as parents, what we should value, and so on. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little more about this idea of stories and the impact that holding so tightly to these fantasies can have on us, on our family life, on those dynamics that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the kind of the book is based on this idea of a map that we kind of bring stories onto a map that we don't even know necessarily that we have. And that might be stories from our own babyhood and childhood and stories from adulthood, stories from society, but also the stories that we've kind of internalised from previous generations from the cultures that we live in so so many stories that we hold unconsciously the tricky thing for us as adults is that we often don't even know that we're holding those stories until we come up against something that proves them wrong Mm. and there are so many of them in parenthood right like there's the kind of really basic ones like I don't know for example maybe I hold a story that I should be able to put a baby in a blanket, pop it in a cot and it's going to go to sleep. And that's just what (laughs) babies do. And that is a story that is so prevalent in our society. Mm -hmm. You think about what you see on TV, what you see in images, you know, those kind of photos that you see of beautiful babies with, you know, angelic faces fast asleep. And actually then when you experience an actual baby and babies are full of raw emotion that can just change at any moment and Mm. don't always know what that is because you have that story or maybe you hold that unconscious story that but when I put that baby in a blanket and I put it in a crib it's going to go to sleep we're then coming up against that obstacle straight away when Mm. that doesn't work because we internalize that almost like a should right this is what should happen and when it doesn't happen it can often take us quite a while to then think well maybe that's because that story actually doesn't apply to me my child our situation Mm -hmm. we then think I'm doing something wrong maybe I need a different blanket maybe I need a different crib maybe the room temperature is wrong maybe my baby has a sleep problem you know so we kind of go down that road rather than go that level down and think what is the story that I've kind of internalized here Mm -hmm. and is that a story that actually fits for me and for my baby or for my family yeah I like that idea of of kind of peeling back the layers like of okay this is what I'm I'm told is you know could be wrong here are all the 
you know, as you were listing all those solutions there, I was like, oh my God, there's so many things that we're told that we should do so many variables that we should, you know, be kind of, well, first of all, aware of, and secondly, Mm. be able to manipulate. Um, When actually, when we strip that away, asking ourselves, does this advice, does this information that I'm sifting through actually apply to me? And, And what is that background story that I've kind of, hung you know I'm hanging my ideas about my child on Mm -hmm. um and and you know do they actually hold up to scrutiny when we when we look at them more closely absolutely and it is you know we have to bring them into consciousness before we can hold them up to scrutiny Mm. right and that's the bit that often we don't do because we just have so many of these stories we have so many of these ideas that you know just because they're around us all the time we don't question them and then as soon as you start questioning them what often happens is that people have you know multiple light bulb moments right on that journey of parenthood where you suddenly go oh why am I doing that actually because that doesn't really work I know exactly what you're talking about with those light bulb moments and I I remember having one maybe even I don't know as recently as like six or, or nine months ago when kind of we just we just got out of you know the really really intense baby phase it's still pretty intense but looking back and and like thinking about how many of these you know like how many stories I suppose I had collected from you know whether it was parenting books or podcasts or social media accounts or whatever it was and then having to like really have a talk with myself about like this is not, this does not apply to me. Like this, Mm. (laughs) I don't need any of this. This is making things more difficult, more stressful, more pressured for me. And actually what I noticed was that it was really undermining my own instincts about how I wanted to parent and, and kind of making me second guess myself a lot. Mm. Um, and, and as soon as I kind of like got to that, it, it like made things so much simpler. I was like, okay, but is this, does this, you know, now I can look at something and say, okay, but does this actually align with my values? Is this actually helpful for me? And does it fit? Does it fit my child, you know, or is it actually going to cause us more tension or friction or or whatever it might be? Mm. Um, So yeah, I really resonate with that idea of having like a sort of light bulb moment and being like, this is trash. We don't need this. Um, And what, what's actually important and valuable for me. There was a part in the book again that really resonated with me, and I think it kind of relates to um, to what what we're talking about here. So I have your book, and I've I've highlighted a little section here, and I wondered if it'd be okay if I if I read it back. To oh, you. I'd love that. I haven't heard it out loud, so yes. Have you you haven't recorded the audio book then? <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. not yet. Not you have that fun to come. So you you've written because when we find ourselves looking for the answers that will make it all easier, we can lose sight of the child right in front of us. We have this idea that if we just find the right strategy, the right label, the right technique, the right line to say, perhaps even the right diagnosis, then everything would be okay. Then we'll have cracked it, whatever it is. Sleeping, feeding, eating, five portions of fruit and veg, good behavior, a healthy relationship. We keep chasing that magic solution and we never stop and look at what is going on right now in ourselves, in our children and in our families. And yeah, this is such a fine line that I straddle as a practitioner, someone who works with parents and families. How can I be supportive without making it seem like if you just follow my five point plan or my formula that, um, you know, everything will, you know, it will solve all, all your problems. I wonder if you could speak to, you know, why we are so drawn to looking to experts to help us figure out how to parent rather than looking at our own child. I think that there's, well, there's two parts to it, right? There's kind of the context in which we live. So historically, we would have lived closer to our families, we would have been part of communities, you Mm -hmm. know, even when I was a child, that absolutely, there was much more of a sense of kind of community, there are other neighbours around or more experienced parents who you might trust to come to for particular guidance. So a lot of that has gone, you know, people are parenting much more in isolation. Yeah. Um, and also in this country, that kind of early intervention, preventative care that used to be very much part of the early parenting experience where you'd have a midwife that you knew well, you'd have a health visitor mm. that you knew well. 
there were community nurses that were around, you had school nurses. So, you know, all of those professionals that you had easy access to have virtually disappeared in the last kind of 15 mm. years. Mm. So that has made a huge difference to people's ability to access information. I mean, the research shows that people still do turn to their family and friends first and foremost for information over and above experts. I think then when you have maybe particular issues that you're struggling with where you might want to speak to a professional like you, if you can't access that for whatever reason, then of course there is this you know absolute wealth of information that is now available to you on the internet. So I think that there's just a kind of practical reality to how differently we live and how that has meant that lots of people have less access to professional expertise than maybe they would have done in the past. There's also, I think, because there's so much more information out there that is accessible on the internet, for example, um, people tend to feel a bit bombarded. So there can be a pressure to feel like you have to choose a particular camp. You know, I'm mm-hmm. going to follow the expertise of of experts who follow like this line of thinking, for example. And then, you know, you can absolutely go down a rabbit hole finding out so much information about this one particular thing. But if that is a an idea or um, a set of strategies that doesn't really fit your family, it can feel really hard to then pull yourself mm-hmm. out of that and shift to a different a different model. You know, often these things are presented to us as particular models or strategies mm-hmm. rather than kind of flexible ideas that we might be able to apply in flexible ways. Um, and then I also think the kind of other side of it is, I mean, we know this in a wider sense that we do live in a society that prizes perfection and often when we come to have children we might have already felt great sense of achievement and success in other areas of our life and there can be a sense for lots of parents that they're going to take that same set of principles that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this well and by doing it well I have to follow these particular guidelines and if I do these things and that means that I'm a good parent and it's almost like we apply that same sense of achievement Mm -hmm. productivity purpose to the act of parenting Mm -hmm. What's difficult, of course, is that they, you know, our children and ourselves change on a daily basis. You know, when they're really little, they change almost on an hourly basis. So when we can feel like we're picking that box, we feel like we've got a strategy or a plan that works, our child changes or our circumstances change or we change, you know, and, and actually you know, again, that kind of idea of flexibility can feel quite hard to hold on to. I think it's a combination of lots of different things. And and then, of course, you know, supply and demand, the more that we look for expertise, the more experts will share their knowledge with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is incredibly helpful. And particularly with social media, with podcasts like yours, you know, it's so easy to be able to go and find a piece of information that we're looking for and there can be tremendous benefits to that and again the research shows that there is a benefit to that the cost is for people who have that sense of socially oriented perfectionism where Mm -hmm. there might be a sense of shame or judgment when they don't feel like they're meeting this particular ideal for example Mm -hmm. that might be held up to them by the different things that they're kind of reading or hearing Mm -hmm. so again I think lots of different reasons some some of them have kind of huge benefits to us and kind of what we have access to, but that also has to be held in mind with what it's costing us in terms of the pressure that we put on ourselves as parents, yeah. but also, like we said before, the pressure that, then that that puts on us as a family in the relationships within the family, if not everybody's on board with that way of doing things. So it's important to kind of hold that in mind too. And sometimes, you know, you can take the bits that you need from experts, but essentially what it comes down to is how am I going to apply this to my situation mm-hmm. or our situation? That can be really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And and I want to, to talk to you in a second, just a, a little bit about how we can sort of sift through the noise and, and figure out what, what is valuable and helpful for us. Because as you say, there, there are things that you know, might, might make a difference and and might be really important, um, you know, might be great, helpful information for, for us. But I I really appreciated you naming in the book and, and you've said it again here, just sort of this, what I would conceptualize probably as sort of internalized capitalism, this Mm. idea to constantly be producing to be achieving to be succeeding and and as you pointed out in the book you know that's how we are um schooled that's you know if we go on to further education that's how we approach our employment 
but do we ever take a step back and, and think about why am I a- applying the same tools to my parenting and, and my relationships with other human beings as I am mm. to, you know, a- achieving, um, you know, a certificate or a degree or whatever, whatever it might be. And I just think that, yeah, capitalism has so much to answer for here, both in, in terms of that and, and how we just approach our parenting, but also going back to what you were saying before about how we used to be so much more in community and around, you know, we would turn to like our parents or maybe like our older siblings or neighbors or cousins or or whatever it was that were, you know, in proximity to us. Now it's so much easier to just look at at, at somebody on our phone than it is to like reach out and have a, a meaningful conversation with someone. Mm. And and that's because we're, you know, capitalism thrives, right? By keeping us isolated, keeping us away from mm. each other. Um, when we're we're so interdependent especially when it comes to to parenting. And Mm -hmm. I think about this a lot in terms of how much easier it would be to feed kids if we were more in community. You know, if your neighbors were like taking around a lasagna because like you've had this reciprocal thing where like, you know, you each double batch cooked something and then swapped every week so that you, Mm. you know, that you were caring for each other in that way and sharing the load and sharing the burden. And also when we're in community, we can see that, yeah, oh, look, that toddler also doesn't eat vegetables. Cool. All right. It's a, to- it's a toddler thing. Whereas when we, when we look, log into social media, all we hear is like, oh, let's, you know, try and program our children to love broccoli more than they love cake or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So I'm on my high horse now, Emma, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go for it. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> I just, I guess kind of thinking thinking a little bit more specifically about feeding um and like the relationship that our children have um with food which i think is so often well it's a reflection of our own relationship with our food and with with food and our bodies and we if we have unresolved things there then that can can kind of have a cascade effect but also you know i see a lot of of generic feeding advice that gets thrown around without nuance or caveats or or just even the disclaimer of like it, you don't have to do this if it doesn't work for you and your family mm. which I think I feel like if people said that more often that would be really helpful but this advice ends up adding more pressure to the feeding relationship which can be counterproductive for feeding and perpetuates this narrative about a correct or a best way to feed a child and I mean we could extrapolate this to almost any element of parenting it's just I'm interested in feeding Can we talk about how we can find a way to like sift through the noise and tune in to what works for you and your family? Um, I obviously would say yes. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I talk about in the book is kind of uh, general parenting tools rather than kind of overarching strategies that there are, you know, a few kind of key things that if you can hold them in mind, then you can apply different advice. Mm to your child and your family situation and for me one of the most important ones of them is around collaboration and I think that you know what we were talking about before when you were talking about capitalism and that kind of sense of uh, productivity and purpose how that applies to feeding and you know kind of eating in the home how we bring our own histories into that too I think so often when we're t- whether we're talking about feeding, whether we're talking about anything else to do with family life, we come to it in a very intellectual way. You know, we're very cognitive. Mm-hmm. We're talking about I'm going to apply this principle or I'm going to do it this way and that's just going to work. You know, I hope is that's just going to work. Um, what I focus on a lot in the book is that how do we go down into thinking about this as a relationship, which I know you talk about a lot, you know, that feeding is a relationship, that we bring our own relationship with food into that. But also our child will have their own experiences of food. When we're coming to things in a cognitive way, you know, we're just thinking about this is what I'm going to apply to this situation and we're not thinking so much about how it's going to land with that mm. other person or what they're bringing to that situation. You know, what is the fit between our experience or our expectations and their experience and their mm. expectations? So, you know, let's say you followed some beautiful advice that you've seen on social media around, you know, like you were talking about broccoli, right? That we're going to feed our children broccoli and that they're just going to eat it because they've presented it so beautifully. And then what happens if actually you know, a child has a sensory issue that means that broccoli isn't absolutely, you know, they're so averse to, 
if we're stuck on that idea that this is, you know, the kind of cognitive, that intellectual idea that this is what should happen, it becomes so hard to see our child's experience of what it is that we're trying to do. So again, you know, being able to base those things on the relationship, you know, what, what did it feel like when I have prepared this food for my child mm -hmm. and they have refused it or actually they're disgusted by it? How does that make me feel? What does that touch on for me as a parent? And often there are such complex issues with that, right? In the book, I kind of start off by thinking about us as 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 whole human beings and what we're bringing and then you know it's only when we understand ourselves that we can really think about how can we then relate to our children so mm. with food for example you know so much gets brought up for us as parents where our children we feel rejected we feel like we're not doing you know a good job I can't even feed my child it's one of those basic tasks but how can this be so hard you know that basic thing that everyone else seems to be doing okay mm. I must be doing something wrong. So what touches on for you, you know, those feelings of, let's say, rejection or, or you know, conversely, maybe it's fury, you know, like how how dare they reject this food? You know, mm -hmm. I've worked so hard. So, you know, thinking about our own histories, how we tend to respond to things will absolutely come into that feeling relationship. And once we can think about what does that touch on for us, we can then think about what do we want to shift so that, that our experience, our emotions aren't getting in the way of what we're trying to do with our child, which is very much a kind of relational process. Mm. Once we understand that and we can think about kind of what we're bringing, then we can think about what are those pieces of information and advice that do fit? Where are those things actually that I feel like I still niggling? Like actually this makes me so angry that maybe I wanna go and think about that somewhere outside of this uh, mm -hmm. situation or set of circumstances. And it's only really then once we understand all of that, that we can then think about how does our child actually feel about broccoli? You know, do they actually like broccoli? Yeah. If yeah. they don't, what am I going to do about that? Am I going to persevere? Is that worth it for me? Do I have the resources? Maybe it's okay for them not to eat broccoli for a little while while I just get over all of the emotions that this broccoli has brought up in me. You know, and it seems so simple, but these are the things that come up for us as parents, you know, multiple, yeah. multiple times yeah. a day when these particular situations or events can touch something that can feel so fundamental, so emotional, so raw, what we tend to then do is that we bring in more information, more kind of cognitive information, so that we try a different strategy rather than then pause at that point and think, why is it that this is bringing up something that feels so powerful for me, yeah. that is getting in the way of what I want to happen between me and my child? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think like just to maybe put it in in slightly more concrete context at least this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently when I see a lot of advice about feeding our children it's you know there's like let's take for example this idea that you shouldn't offer alternatives right mm. if, the, if the child doesn't like you know doesn't eat what's on the table by you know there's there's this school of thought by of of like well um if you offer alternatives, then your child is manipulating you and, mm. you know, you're getting into this battle of wills with your child and, you know, setting aside what's going on with the child's psychology there, you're already setting this up as a sort of, you know, a battle. A battle yeah. yeah. Uh, rather than a relationship where, you know, where you might be able to be like, okay, what, what, what's coming up for me when they refuse their broccoli? And okay, then once I've, once I've maybe processed that a little bit and, you know, talked myself down off the edge, what, what's going on for them? Oh, actually, like they have a sensor processing difference or they, you know, there's not enough safe foods on the table. So they can't actually, it doesn't feel, they don't have that sense of felt safety that allows mm. them to come to the table and, and have a meal with the, the rest of the family. If you're even eating at a table in the first place. Basically, it actually prevents us from, from being responsive to the child that is in front of us. And, and I, I know responsive can be kind of like a loaded term for some people. But what I mean by that is literally just being able to see the, the child and their needs and meet them where they're at, rather than kind mm. of assuming that actually they're trying to manipulate you. And and, <laughs> and I think we can often have this idea, right, that we as parents are in control. 
and that if our children are not doing the things mm. that we feel like they should be doing that they're meant to be doing that other people's children seem to be doing then that's our failure as a parent yeah. and we just need to try harder or we need to work more or that there's something wrong with them and so we need to work at kind yeah. of fixing them yeah. and actually you know the relationship between a parent and child is so complex you know it's almost yeah. we can have this idea that children are like these malleable objects that you know if we're just molding them in the right way then they're going to come out the outcome is going to be the one that we are you know yes. striving yeah. for yeah rather than actually our children come into the world as these whole human beings who have their own thoughts, feelings, needs, beliefs, tastes, you know, and also then within the the wider context in which we're living, you know, can I afford broccoli at the moment? Mm -hmm. How do I feel about broccoli? You know, what happened when I refused broccoli at the kitchen table and how much is that impacting on how I feel now? So, Mm -hmm. you know, our history, our current circumstances, the relationships that we're in, our work environments, our financial circumstances, you know we're talking about broccoli but all of those things can yeah. really um you know kind of yeah they obviously have a huge impact on these kind of very what seem yeah. like very minor circumstances yeah what does that broccoli represent what's it really about <laughs> so this is this, you know this is the most you know I'm thinking about people listening to this and going, yeah, typical psychologist, right? We're talking about broccoli and now I'm talking about like wider society. But actually, you know, because we so often just see that kind of one idea of it just it's just about the broccoli and yeah. you know if if I tried hard enough then I'd be able to mold my child to eat that broccoli or whatever it might be but when we can take into account everything that we're bringing everything that they're bringing our wider circumstances then we can kind of really yeah focus in on that relationship as whole people right like this is who I am showing up to this you know this kitchen table and this is who they are and this is how they're showing up and you know all of those kind of different circumstances their mood how tired they are all of those things that can get in the way that once we let go of that idea of this is how it should be Mm -hmm. we can start to see what actually is you know actually is in front of us and then we can you know think about solutions to target what is going on in those moments I think there is something and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as well Emma that feels uniquely kind of yeah I think you used the word fundamental earlier or primitive or something that you know gets to really the core of um you know survival for humans mm-hmm. when it comes to feeding yeah. that really kind of just it kind of it's like a knife gets dug in in a way that it doesn't with with some other areas of of parenting that yeah it's just such a an essential part maybe of being Mm. a parent feeding your child particularly again I'm thinking to like those early um early weeks and months and and years when you know there is that kind of narrative of like the first 1000 days are the most important of a child's life and you know what you feed them now is gonna impact their you know cognitive development and Da, 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 for the rest of their lives and so I just wonder if, if from a, a psychologist perspective if, if you have any thoughts about just like you know what that's can, kind of touching on for us when feeding isn't going well I think you're right I think it's it's so primitive you know that actually so much of parenting is around these kind of really primitive survival mechanisms yeah. you know that actually are our role first and foremost is to keep this child alive you know whatever at whatever cost and you know feeding difficulties can start you know from day one so thinking about you know kind of those who have breastfeeding difficulties or feel judged for their feeding choices for example and then that can kind of go on so much through food being a representation of love you know how did we experience that when we were growing up um and then how do we want to kind of translate that for our own family again within the context that we're in so if we're you know two parents are working full-time for example how does that how how do we kind of translate that into you know eating together or those kind of you know idealized family meals that we might hold in our minds so I think it can be very fraught it can be such a fraught experience and and I think it's also an experience that is so judged right you know thinking about feeding babies thinking about what kind of food we we give our toddlers thinking about you know the all of the kind of news stories that you've spoken about about diet culture obesity all of that kind of it can get get really mixed up our own relationships with our bodies our own relationships with food and how that comes up in our experience of feeding our children 
mm-hmm. how well supported we are in that, you know, financially again, kind of how that how that can impact on what we're able to offer our children. So I think, you know, it is the way that we express love. It's the way that we kind of show our children that we care about them. At the same time, there is so much pressure to do it a certain way so it can become so fault so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I think we also don't talk enough about how boring it can be to feed children day in, it's day out. Relentless. It's so relentless. It's so relentless. Three meals, three snacks, like, oh, you don't like this anymore. Suddenly you like that yesterday. And yeah. you know, when, you know, you've kind of been, if you've raised children during lockdowns and you literally, you know, it was almost like a constant rotation of food over lockdown. So, you know, I think that we don't talk enough about that kind of ambivalence around, you know, not just our parenting tasks but parenting in general that you know again the ideal is that we're going to have this kind of lovely you know kind of food environment that um we're going to share these kind of pleasant meals together where the family are coming together to talk about their day all of this kind of again kind of back to that idea of stories narratives ideals that we hold when actually for a lot of parents food is something that can just feel quite boring and quite relentless and and often very stressful um, and, you know, as soon as we start talking about that side of things too, the more difficult, the more negative side of things, often we can feel a real sense of relief that actually it doesn't have to be this one ideal way, that actually all of these experiences can be so complex and varied as individual. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for for speaking to, the, to that point and, and I think naming how, yeah, tedious feeding a family can be and we were kind of talking a little bit off mic I have a piece coming out next week that talks about um, feeding a child as anesthetic like that's what we see so much of on on um, social media when actually if if we're feeding with that per, like idealized image in our head again it occludes us from seeing the child in front of us and being in relationship with that child and and food can be you know, again, without romanticizing it, it can be a time for connection and for checking in. It can also just be a clusterfuck sometimes (laughs) nobody else, you know, through no one's fault. Um, Just because you sometimes you have to just get food in their mouths to sustain them to get to the next activity or like, you know, to grandma's house or what, you know, whatever it is. So um, yeah, I think I really appreciate that, you know, that you're you're having these conversations where we're looking at the messy ugly boring tiring exhausting side of it but not in this like memified way that we often see that that sort of like really trivializes how exhausting and draining and how much hard work all of this is yeah I I really appreciate that in your in the book that you're kind of inviting us to check in with what what stories and fantasies that we're bringing to our parenting that actually might be causing us more suffering and and, and harming the relationships that we're having with with yeah. our families so that we can kind of you know give ourselves permission to take what we need and leave the rest of it yeah. so yeah and you can get really creative then right like once you let go of those ideals and you think about what do I want? What do we need as a family? You can get really creative with the way that you do things. So, you know, for example, feeding children in the bath, that is something that somebody that I know does, you know, occasionally when they've had a really tricky day and it's just (laughs) all been an absolute shit show. And I'm like, you know what, we're just going to get in the bath. You can have some sandwiches. That means I don't need to do any cleaning up. And then I'm going to pop you into bed and I'm going to go sit on the sofa. And that is not something that you'd ever see on Instagram, I don't think. But, you know, just that kind of idea of what what is going to work for me in yeah. what, and what do I need right now? And what does my child need right now? And maybe they don't need to have this kind of really beautiful, aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing real time actually maybe they just need to eat something quickly so yeah. that you can then move on with your day or or have a connection in a different way and if you know as as you know and you talked about you know the the stress that can come with feeding can cause such a vicious circle so quickly yeah. that actually anything that you can do to kind of nip that in the bud and be yeah. able to again bring in ideas about flexibility creativity mm-hmm. what's going to work so that you can feed your child but also in a way that feels the least stressful for all of you yeah absolutely I I fully endorse toast for dinner if that's like, you know, what you need to do to like put something in their bellies and get them to bed. Like mm. as long as they're having enough to eat, then yeah, we're good. Mm. <laughs> um, Emma, 
thank you so much. This has been a really, a really great conversation. Before I let you go, I want to ask you who or what is nourishing you right now? Um, well, at the moment, I've been really focused on kind of restoration. So I think last year I did a lot of work around kind of reflection over the pandemic experience that many parents had and how burnt out so many people are given the kind of experiences of the last few years that are continuing so at the moment what I'm really kind of nourishing myself with so I have a particular person Lama Raj who is an amazing kind of meditation teacher and just started to run these kind of Thursday evening meditation groups uh, for UK people because he's based in the States so um, I've been kind of really consuming a lot of his work and his presence is just incredibly helpful and healing and I really love what he has to say about this particular time that we live in mm. I think that you'll really like him Laura he has a lot oh. to say about you know the kind of he calls this almost like the age of apocalypse that we are coming into we're in dark times at the moment but that actually it is by embracing that darkness that we can start to think about what we want to shift into yeah. the future Oh, yeah. So very much yeah. about, you know, not being afraid of embracing the dark, messy stuff, which is something that feels really resonates with me. I think that um, it reminds me of Bayo Akamalafi's work. I don't know if you, you're familiar with their book, um, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, where they talk about that in terms of like climate crisis and mm. um, but also like racism and parenting. They're a parent. It's a there's also some like nuclear physics or something in there. It's like, it's a really dense, dense book, but um, I'll, I'll link to that and I'll link to, yeah, sorry, what did you say the name of the, 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 so his name is Lama, Lama Rod Owens and he's on Instagram, but he also has loads of stuff on the internet and he, um, he, he does a number of courses. He also wrote a book. So yeah, he's got lots of information. Okay. There. I'll link, definitely link to, to them in the, in the show notes. And then the final question I have for you, Emma, is what are you snacking on right now? So at the end of every episode, my guest and I share something. It's like a recommendation that they have for the audience. It can be an actual snack. I mean, I feel like you've just given us a recommendation, but <laughs> I want another one. <laughs> like what you've been into lately. I am snacking on rest, which I think, you know, the, again, we can often have this idea that we have to do these things in a perfect way that, mm. you know, what our kind of recovery journey might look like having come out of a few years where things have been so intense for so many yeah. families, mm -hmm. you know, that if we talk about kind of health, you know, self healing or wellness journeys, often mm. we're talking about, I'm going to get up and meditate for an hour in the morning. You just can't do it's that also, when you've got children yeah. um, or it's hard to do that when you've got children. So um, I am a big fan of just snacking on rest, moments of rest where you take moments during the day to just reset yourself. So even just sitting with your eyes closed, taking a few deep breaths mm. or just thinking about the ground beneath your feet or just stopping, you know, so that you're not just going and going and going all day, but really taking a moment to check in with yourself and just see how yeah. you are. I love that microdosing on rest throughout the yeah, day. Absolutely. I love it. Okay, so my I feel like my thing is kind of just silly, but in in a good way. So we are recording this in January 2023. So we're just coming out of like the holiday law, whatever that was. But I just came across last at the end of last week the 2022 hater's guide to the William Sonoma catalog. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with what William Sonoma is, but it's this US based brand. And it's like, if you think about like a John Lewis or like, you know, a higher end department store, but like on steroids, um, that's William Sonoma. It's like all these wildly expensive, like, you know, like a countertop pizza oven like nobody needs that in a flat in London you know like <laughs> who needs that who has the kitchen space for that and it's like you know everything is like all the kitchen appliances are like $500 and stuff but anyway this guy just goes through a bunch of items in the William Sonoma um, catalog takes like the copy that they've written in there and just rips it a new one just tears into it and it's hilarious and it's very cathartic um and highly enjoyable so 
a link to that. I know we're like oh, great. out of Christmas season and holiday season, but um, I think it's still worthwhile to have a little look at. And um, you can watch out for the 2023 one if you're listening to this oh, later okay. in the year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Emma, can you tell everyone the name of your amazing new book and where they can find out more information about you? Uh, yes, so I am Mammologist on Instagram and loads of my kind of links and everything are on there. Or my website is dremmastanberg.com. The book is called Parenting for Humans and it is out on March the 2nd, which is World Book Day, which I love. Oh, lovely. That's so, so cool. So, you know, I'd, again, love it if people would pre-order it. That makes a big difference. But yeah, if people do get their hands on it, I'd love to hear what people make of it. We'll have all of the links for Emma's books and her social media and her website in the transcript and in the show notes for this episode. So check her out. Thank you so much, Emma. This was, Thank I think, you. will be really reassuring for a lot of parents to just hear that, okay, we can let go of some of the pressure and expectations and just check in with ourselves and figure out what it is that we need and what we want yeah. from our relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for chatting to me, Laura. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Can I Have Another Snack? If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review in your podcast player and head over to laurathomas.substack.com for the full transcript of this conversation, plus links we discussed in the episode and how you can find out more about this week's guest. While you're over there, consider signing up for either a free or paid subscription to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter where I'm exploring topics around bodies, identity, and appetite, especially as it relates to parenting. Although it's totally cool if you're not a parent, you're welcome too. We're building a really awesome community of cool, creative, and smart people who are committed to ending the tyranny of body shame and intergenerational transmission of disordered eating. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas, edited by Julie Kelly. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pricer. And the music is by Jason Barkhouse. And lastly, Fiona Bray keeps me on track and makes sure this episode gets out every week. This episode wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you for being here and valuing my work. And I'll catch you next week.